Hi everyone, this is Robert. Welcome to The Well-Told Tale. Every week we bring to life the greatest science fiction and fantasy stories ever written. The Well-Told Tale is now available as both a podcast and on YouTube, as well as being available early for my patrons every week over on Patreon.com. There's a link in the description if you're interested in that, or getting access to some stories I record just for my patrons. Today, we start another story by one of our favourite authors here on The Well-Told Tale, the granddaddy of modern science fiction, H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells can be credited with, if not inventing many of the subgenres of science fiction, certainly popularising them. Time travel in The Time Machine, interstellar warfare in The War of the Worlds, both stories I've covered here on The Well-Told Tale if you're interested, and so on. Here, he covers what happens when someone gains superpowers. In this story, the ability to be invisible. As we'll see over the next few weeks, it exposes the heart of a human. What would you do if no one could see what you were doing? So, pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy part one of The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells. Chapter One The Strange Man's Arrival The stranger came early in February, one wintry day, through a biting wind and in a driving snow, the last snowfall of the year, over the down. Walking from Bramblehurst Railway Station and carrying a little black portmanteau in his thickly gloved hand, he was wrapped up from head to foot, and the brim of his soft felt hat hid every inch of his face but the shiny tip of his nose. The snow had piled itself against his shoulders and chest, and added a white crest to the burden he carried. He staggered into the coach and horses, more dead than alive, and flung his portmanteau down. A fire, he cried, in the name of human charity, a room and a fire. He stamped and shook the snow from off himself in the bar, and followed Mrs. Hall into her guest parlour to strike his bargain. And with that much introduction, that and a couple of sovereigns flung upon the table, he took his quarters at the inn. Mrs. Hall lit the fire and left him there while she went to prepare him a meal with her own hands. A guest to stop at Iping in the winter time was an unheard-of piece of luck, let alone a guest who was no haggler, and she was resolved to show herself worthy of her good fortune. As soon as the bacon was well underway, and Millie, her lymphatic maid, had been brisked up a bit by a few deftly chosen expressions of contempt, she carried the cloth, plates and the glasses into the parlour, and began to lay them with the utmost eclat. Although the fire was burning up briskly, she was surprised to see that her visitor still wore his coat and hat, standing with his back to her and staring out of the window at the falling snow in the yard. His gloved hands were clasped behind him, and he seemed to be lost in thought. She noticed that the melting snow that still sprinkled his shoulders dripped upon her carpet. "'Can I take your hat and coat, sir?' she said, "'and give them a good dry in the kitchen.' "'No,' he said, without turning. She was not sure she had heard him, and was about to repeat her question. He turned his head and looked at her over his shoulder. "'I prefer to keep them on.' he said, with emphasis, and she noticed that he wore big blue spectacles and sidelights, and had a bush side-whisker over his coat-collar that completely hid his cheeks and face. "'Very well, sir,' she said, "'as you like. In a bit the room will be warmer.' 
He made no answer, and had turned his face away from her again, and Mrs. Hall, feeling that her conversational advances were ill-timed, laid the rest of the table things in a quick staccato and whisked out of the room. When she returned, he was still standing there like a man of stone, his back hunched, his collar turned up, his dripping hat-brim turned down, hiding his face and ears completely. She put down the eggs and bacon with considerable emphasis, and called rather than said to him, "'Your lunch is served, sir!' "'Thank you,' he said at the same time, and did not stir until she was closing the door. Then he swung round and approached the table with a certain eager quickness. As she went behind the bar to the kitchen, she heard a sound repeated at regular intervals. "'Chuck! Chuck! Chuck!' it went, the sound of a spoon being rapidly whisked round a basin." That girl, she said. There, I clean forgot it. It's her being so long. And while she herself finished mixing the mustard, she gave Millie a few verbal stabs for her excessive slowness. She had cooked the ham and eggs, laid the table and done everything, while Millie, help indeed, had only succeeded in delaying the mustard, and him a new guest and wanting to stay. Then she filled the mustard pot, and, putting it with a certain stateliness upon a golden black tea tray, carried it into the parlour. She rapped and entered promptly. As she did so, her visitor moved quickly so that she got but a glimpse of a white object disappearing behind the table. It would seem he was picking something from the floor. She rapped down the mustard pot on the table, and then she noticed the overcoat and hat had been taken off and put over a chair in front of the fire, and a pair of wet boots threatened rust to her steel fender. She went to these things resolutely. "'I suppose I may have them to dry now,' she said in a voice that brooked no denial. "'Leave the hat,' said her visitor, in a muffled voice, and turning she saw that he had raised his head and was sitting and looking at her. For a moment she stood gaping at him, too surprised to speak. He held a white cloth, it was a serviette he had brought with him, over the lower part of his face, so that his mouth and jaws were completely hidden, and that was the reason of his muffled voice. But it was not that which startled Mrs. Hall.' It was the fact that all his forehead above his blue glasses was covered by a white bandage, and that another covered his ears, leaving not a scrap of his face exposed excepting only his pink, peaked nose. It was bright pink and shiny, just as it had been at first. He wore a dark brown velvet jacket, and with a high black linen-lined collar turned up about his neck. The thick black hair, escaping as it could below and between the cross bandages, projected in curious tails and horns, giving him the strangest appearance conceivable. This muffled and bandaged head was so unlike what she had anticipated that for a moment she was rigid. He did not remove the serviette, but remained holding it, as she saw now with a brown-gloved hand, and regarding her with his inscrutable blue glasses. "'Leave the hat,' he said, speaking very distinctly through the white cloth. Her nerves began to recover from the shock they had received. She placed the hat on the chair again by the fire. I didn't know, sir, she began, that... And she stopped, embarrassed. Thank you, he said dryly, glancing from her to the door and then at her again. I'll have them nicely dried, sir, at once, she said, and carried his clothes out of the room. She glanced at his white-swathed head and blue goggles again as she was going out of the door, but his napkin was still in front of his face. She shivered a little as she closed the door behind her, and her face was eloquent of her surprise and perplexity. "'I never,' she whispered. "'There,' she went quite softly to the kitchen, and was too preoccupied to ask Millie what she was messing about with now when she got there. 
The visitor sat and listened to her retreating feet. He glanced inquiringly at the window before he removed his serviette and resumed his meal. He took a mouthful, glanced suspiciously at the window, took another mouthful, then rose, and taking the serviette in his hand, walked across the room and pulled the blind down to the top of the white muslin that obscured the lower panes. This left the room in a twilight. This done, he returned with an easier air to the table and his meal. "'The poor souls had an accident or an operation or something,' said Mrs. Hall. "'What a turn them bandages did give me, to be sure!' She put on some more coal, unfolded the clothes horse, and extended the traveller's coat upon this. "'And they goggles! Why, he looked more like a diving helmet than a human man!' She hung his muffler on a corner of the horse, and holding that handkerchief over his mouth all the time, talking through it, perhaps his mouth was hurt too. Maybe.' She turned round as one who suddenly remembers. "'Bless my soul alive,' she said, going off at a tangent. "'Ain't you done them taters yet, Millie?' When Mrs. Hall went to clear away the stranger's lunch, her idea that his mouth must have been cut or disfigured in the accident she supposed him to have suffered was confirmed, for he was smoking a pipe, and all the time that she was in the room he never loosened the silk muffler he had wrapped around the lower part of his face to put the mouthpiece to his lips. Yet it was not forgetfulness, for she saw he glanced at it as it smouldered out. He sat in the corner with his back to the window-blind, and spoke now, having eaten and drunk and been comfortably warmed through, with less aggressive brevity than before. The reflection of the fire lent a kind of red animation to his big spectacles they had lacked hitherto. "'I have some luggage,' he said, "'at Bramblehurst Station,' and he asked her how he could have it sent." He bowed his bandaged head quite politely in acknowledgement of her explanation. "'Tomorrow,' he said. "'There is no speedier delivery?' and seemed quite disappointed when she answered, "'No.' "'Was she quite sure? No man with a trap who would go over?' Mrs. Hall, nothing loath, answered his questions and just developed a conversation. "'It's a steep road by the down, sir,' she said, in answer to the question about a trap, and then, snatching at an opening, said, "'It was there a carriage was upsettled a year ago and more. A gentleman killed, besides his coachman. Accidents happen, sir, in a moment, don't they?' But the visitor was not to be drawn so easily. "'They do,' he said, through his muffler, eyeing her quietly through his impenetrable glasses. "'But they take long enough to get well, don't they?' There was my sister's son, Tom, just cut his arm with the scythe, tumbled on it in the A-field, and, bless me, he was three months tied up, sir. You'd hardly believe it. It's regular given me the dread of a scythe, sir. I can quite understand that, said the visitor. He was afraid one time that he'd have to have an operation. He was that bad, sir. The visitor laughed abruptly, the bark of a laugh that he seemed to bite and kill in his mouth. Was he? he said. He was, sir, and no laughing matter to them as had the doing for him as I had. My sister took up with her little ones so much. There was bandages to do, sir, and bandages to undo, so that if I may make so bold as to say it, sir, will you get me some matches, said the visitor, quite abruptly. My pipe is out. Mrs. Hall was pulled up suddenly. It was certainly rude of him, after telling him all she had done. She gasped at him for a moment and remembered the two sovereigns. She went for the matches. "'Thanks,' he said concisely as she put them down, and turned his shoulder upon her and stared out of the window again. It was altogether too discouraging. Evidently he was sensitive on the topic of operations and bandages. She did not make so bold as to say, however, after all, 
but his snubbing way had irritated her, and Millie had a hot tongue of it that afternoon. The visitor remained in the parlour until four o'clock without giving the ghost of an excuse for an intrusion. For the most part he was quite still during that time. It would seem he sat in the growing darkness smoking in the firelight, perhaps dozing. Once or twice a curious listener might have heard him at the coals, and for the space of five minutes he was audible pacing the room. He seemed to be talking to himself. Then the armchair creaked as he sat down again. Chapter 2 Mr. Teddy Henfrey's First Impressions At four o'clock, when it was fairly dark and Mrs. Hall was screwing up her courage to go in and ask her visitor if he would take some tea, Teddy Henfrey, the clock jobber, came into the bar. "'My sakes, Mrs. Hall,' said he, "'but this is terrible weather for thin boots.' The snow outside was falling faster. Mrs. Hall agreed and then noticed he had his bag with him. "'Now you're here, Mr. Teddy,' she said. "'I'd be glad if you give the old clock in the parlour a bit of a look. "'Tis going, and it strikes well and hearty, "'but the hour hand won't do nothing but point at six. And leading the way, she went across to the parlour door and rapped and entered. Her visitor, she saw as she opened the door, was seated in the armchair before the fire, dozing, it would seem, with his bandaged head drooping on one side. The only light in the room was the red glow from the fire, which lit his eyes like adverse railway signals, but left his downcast face in darkness, and the scanty vestiges of the day that came in through the open door. Everything was ruddy, shadowy and indistinct to her, the more so since she had just been lighting the bar lamp and her eyes were dazzled. But for a second, it seemed to her that the man she looked at had an enormous mouth wide open, a vast and incredible mouth that swallowed the whole of the lower portion of his face. It was the sensation of a moment, the white-bound head, the monstrous goggle eyes, and this huge yawn below it. Then he stirred, started up in his chair, put up his hand. She opened the door wide so that the room was lighter, and she saw him more clearly with the muffler held up to his face just as she had seen him hold the serviette before. The shadows, she fancied, had tricked her. "'Would you mind, sir, this man a coming to look at the clock, sir?' she said, recovering from the momentary shock. "'Look at the clock,' he said, staring round in a drowsy manner and speaking over his hand, and then getting more fully awake. "'Certainly.' Mrs. Hall went away to get a lamp, and he rose and stretched himself. Then came the light, and Mr. Teddy Henfrey, entering, was confronted by this bandaged person. He was, he says, taken aback. "'Good afternoon,' said the stranger, regarding him, as Mr. Henfrey says, with a vivid sense of the dark spectacles, like a lobster. "'I hope,' said Mr. Henfrey, "'that it's no intrusion.' "'None whatever,' said the stranger. "'Though I understand,' he said, turning to Mrs. Hall, that this room is really to be mine, for my own private use. "'I thought, sir,' said Mrs. Hall, "'you'd prefer the clock?' "'Certainly,' said the stranger, "'certainly, but as a rule I like to be alone and undisturbed.' "'But I'm really glad to have the clock seen to,' he said, "'seeing a certain hesitation in Mr. Henfrey's manner. "'Very glad.' Mr. Henfrey had intended to apologise and withdraw, but this anticipation reassured him. The stranger turned round with his back to the fireplace and put his hands behind his back. "'And presently,' he said, "'when the clock-mending is over, I think I should like to have some tea, but not till the clock-mending is over.' Mrs. Hall was about to leave the room. She made no conversational advances this time, because she did not want to be snubbed in front of Mr. Henfrey, when her visitor asked her if she had made any arrangements about his boxes at Bramblehurst. 
She told him she had mentioned the matter to the postman and that the carrier could bring them over on the morrow. You are certain that is the earliest, he said. She was certain with a marked coldness. I should explain, he added, what I was really too cold and fatigued to do before, that I am an experimental investigator. Indeed, sir, said Mrs. Hall, much impressed, and my baggage contains apparatus and appliances. Very useful things indeed they are, sir, said Mrs. Hall, and I'm very naturally anxious to get on with my inquiries. Of course, sir. My reason for coming to Iping, he proceeded with a certain deliberation of manner, was a desire for solitude. I do not wish to be disturbed in my work. In addition to my work, an accident, I thought as much, said Mrs. Hall to herself, necessitates a certain retirement. My eyes are sometimes so weak and painful that I have to shut myself up in the dark for hours together, lock myself up, sometimes now and then. Not at present, certainly. At such times, the slightest disturbance, the entry of a stranger into the room, is a source of excruciating annoyance to me. It is well these things should be understood. Certainly, sir, said Mrs. Hall. And if I might make so bold as to ask... That, I think, is all, said the stranger, with that quietly irresistible air of finality he could assume at will. Mrs. Hall reserved her question and sympathy for a better occasion. After Mrs. Hall had left the room, he remained standing in front of the fire, glaring, so Mr. Henfrey puts it, at the clock-mending. Mr. Henfrey not only took off the hands of the clock and the face, but extracted the works, and he tried to work in as slow and quiet and unassuming a manner as possible. He worked with the lamp close to him, and the green shade threw a brilliant light upon his hands, and upon the frame and wheels, and left the rest of the room shadowy. When he looked up, coloured patches swam in his eyes. Being constitutionally of a curious nature, he had removed the works, a quite unnecessary proceeding, with the idea of delaying his departure and perhaps falling into conversation with the stranger. But the stranger stood there, perfectly silent and still. So still, it got on Henfrey's nerves. He felt alone in the room and looked up, and there, grey and dim, was the bandaged head and huge blue lenses staring fixedly, with a mist of green spots drifting in front of them. It was so uncanny to Henfrey that for a moment they remained staring blankly at one another. Then Henfrey looked down again. Very uncomfortable position. One would like to say something. Should he remark that the weather was very cold for the time of year? He looked up as if to take aim with that introductory shot. The weather, he began. Why don't you finish and go? said the rigid figure, evidently in a state of painfully suppressed rage. All you've got to do is fix the hour hand on its axle. You're simply humbugging. Certainly, sir. One minute more. I overlooked... And Mr. Hemphrey finished and went. But he went feeling excessively annoyed. Damn it, said Mr. Hemphrey to himself, trudging down the village through the thawing snow. A man must do a clock at times, surely. And again, can't a man look at you? Ugly? And yet again, seemingly not. If the police wanted you, you couldn't be more ropped and bandaged. At Gleason's corner he saw Hall, who had recently married the stranger's hostess in the coach and horses, and who now drove the Iping conveyance, when occasional people required it, to Sidderbridge Junction, coming towards him on his return from that place. Hall had evidently been stopping a bit at Sidderbridge, to judge by his driving. "'How do, Teddy?' 
he said, passing. You got a rummin up home, said Teddy. Hall very sociably pulled up. What's that? he cried. Rum-looking customer stopping at the coach and horses, said Teddy. My sakes. And he proceeded to give Hall a vivid description of his grotesque guest. Looks like a bit of a disguise, don't it? I'd like to see a man's face if I had him stopping in my place, said Henfrey. But women are that trustful where strangers are concerned. He's took your rooms, and he ain't even given a name, Hall. You don't say so, said Hall, who was a man of sluggish apprehension. Yes, said Teddy. By the week. Whatever he is, you can't get rid of him under the week. And he's got a lot of luggage coming tomorrow, so he says, Let's hope it won't be stones in boxes, Hall. He told Hall how his aunt at Hastings had been swindled by a stranger with empty portmanteau. Altogether, he left Hall vaguely suspicious. Get up, old girl, said Hall. I suppose I must see about this. Teddy trudged on his way with his mind considerably relieved. Instead of seeing about it, however, Hall on his return was severely rated by his wife on the length of time he had spent in Sidderbridge, and his mild inquiries were answered snappishly and in a manner not to the point. But the seed of suspicion Teddy had sown germinated in the mind of Mr. Hall, in spite of these discouragements. "'You women don't know everything,' said Mr. Hall, resolved to ascertain more about the personality of his guest at the earliest possible opportunity. After the stranger had gone to bed, which he did about half-past nine, Mr. Hall went very aggressively into the parlour and looked very hard at his wife's furniture, just to show that the stranger wasn't master there, and scrutinised closely and a little contemptuously a sheet of mathematical computations the stranger had left. When retiring for the night, he instructed Mrs. Hall to look very closely at the stranger's luggage when it came the next day. "'You mind your own business, Hall,' said Mrs. Hall, "'and I'll mind mine.' She was all the more inclined to snap at Hall because the stranger was undoubtedly an unusually strange sort of stranger, and she was by no means assured about him in her own mind. In the middle of the night, she woke up, dreaming of huge white heads like turnips that came trailing after her at the end of interminable necks and with vast black eyes. But being a sensible woman, she subdued her terrors and turned over and went back to sleep again. Chapter 3 the Thousand and One Bottles. So it was that on the twenty-ninth day of February, at the beginning of the thaw, this singular person fell out of infinity into Iping Village. Next day his luggage arrived through the slush, and very remarkable luggage it was. There were a couple of trunks indeed, such as a rational man might need, but in addition there were a box of books, big, fat books of which some were just in incomprehensible handwriting, and a dozen or more crates, boxes and cases containing objects packed in straw, as it seemed to Hall, tugging with a casual curiosity at the straw, glass bottles. The stranger, muffled in hat, coat, gloves and wrapper, came out impatiently to meet Firenside's cart, while Hall was having a word or so of gossip preparatory to helping bring them in. Out he came, not noticing Fearenside's dog, who was sniffing in a dilettante spirit at Hall's legs. "'Come along with those boxes,' he said. "'I've been waiting long enough.' And he came down the steps towards the tail of the cart, as if to lay hands on the smaller crate. No sooner had Fearenside's dog caught sight of him, however, that it began to bristle and growl savagely, and when he rushed down the steps it gave an undecided hop and then sprang straight at his hand. "'Whoop!' 
cried Hall, jumping back, for he was no hero with dogs, and Fearinside howled, Lie down! and snatched his whip. They saw the dog's teeth had slipped the hand, heard a kick, saw the dog execute a flanking jump and get home on the stranger's leg, and heard the rip of trousering. Then the finer end of Fearinside's whip reached his property, and the dog, yelping with dismay, retreated under the wheels of the wagon. It was all the business of a swift half-minute. No one spoke, everyone shouted. The stranger glanced swiftly at his torn glove and at his leg, made as if he would stoop to the latter, then turned and rushed swiftly up the steps into the inn. They heard him go headlong across the passage and up the uncarpeted stairs to his bedroom. "'You brute, you!' said Firenside, climbing off the wagon with his whip in his hand while the dog watched him through the wheel. "'Come here!' said Firenside. "'He was bit,' said Hall. "'I'd better go and see to him.' and he trotted after the stranger. He met Mrs. Hall in the passage. Carrier's dog, he said. Betten. He went straight upstairs, and the stranger's door being ajar, he pushed it open, and was entering without any ceremony being of a naturally sympathetic turn of mind. The blind was down and the room dim. He caught a glimpse of a most singular thing, what seemed a handless arm waving towards him, and a face of three huge indeterminate spots on white, very like the face of a pale pansy. Then he was struck violently in the chest, hurled back, and the door slammed in his face and locked. It was so rapid that it gave him no time to observe. A waving of indecipherable shapes, a blow and concussion. There he stood on the dark little landing, wondering what it might be that he had seen. A couple of minutes after, he rejoined the little group that had formed outside the coach and horses. There was Fearinside telling about it all over again for the second time. There was Mrs. Hall saying his dog didn't have no business to bite her guests. There was Huckster, the general dealer from over the road, interrogative. And Sandy Rogers from the forge, judicial, besides women and children, all of them saying fatuities. Wouldn't let him bite me, I knows. Doesn't right have such dogs. What'd he bite em for, then? And so forth. Mr. Hall, staring at them from the steps and listening, found it incredible that he had seen anything so very remarkable happen upstairs. Besides, his vocabulary was altogether too limited to express his impressions. You don't want no help, he says, he said in answer to his wife's inquiry. We'd better be a taken of his luggage in. "'He ought to have it cauterised at once,' said Mr. Huckster, "'especially if it's at all inflamed.' "'I'd shoot him. that's what I'd do,' said a lady in the group. Suddenly the dog began growling again. "'Come along,' cried an angry voice in the doorway, and there stood the muffled stranger with his collar turned up and his hat-brim bent down. "'The sooner you get these things in, the better I'll be pleased.' It is stated by an anonymous bystander that his trousers and gloves had been changed. "'Was you hurt, sir?' said Firenside. I'm rare sorry, the dog. Not a bit, said the stranger. Never broke the skin. Hurry up with those things. He then swore to himself, so Mr. Hall asserts. Directly, the first crate was, in accordance with his directions, carried into the parlour. The stranger flung himself upon it with extraordinary eagerness and began to unpack it, scattering the straw with an utter disregard of Mrs. Hall's carpet and from it he began to produce bottles, little fat bottles containing powders, small and slender bottles containing coloured and white fluids, fluted blue bottles labelled 
poison, bottles with round bodies and slender necks, large green glass bottles, large white glass bottles, bottles with glass stoppers and frosted labels, bottles with fine corks, bottles with bungs, bottles with wooden caps, wine bottles, salad oil bottles, putting them in rows on the chiffonnier and the mantel and the table under the window, round the floor, on the bookshelf, everywhere. The chemist's shop in Bramblehurst could not boast half so many. Quite a sight it was. Crate after crate yielded bottles, until all six were empty and the table high with straw. The only things that came out of these crates besides the bottle were a number of test tubes and a carefully packed balance. And directly the crates were unpacked. The stranger went to the window and set to work, not troubling in the least about the litter of straw, the fire which had gone out, the box of books outside, nor for the trunks and other luggage that had gone upstairs. When Mrs. Hall took his dinner into him, he was already so absorbed in his work, pouring little drops out of the bottles into test tubes, that he did not hear her until she had swept away the bulk of the straw and put the tray on the table, with some little emphasis perhaps, seeing the state that the floor was in. Then he half turned his head and immediately turned it away again. But she saw he had removed his glasses. They were beside him on the table, and it seemed to her that his eye sockets were extraordinarily hollow. He put on his spectacles again, and then turned and faced her. She was about to complain of the straw on the floor when he anticipated her. I wish you wouldn't come in without knocking, he said in the tone of abnormal exasperation that seemed so characteristic of him. I knocked, but seemingly... Perhaps you did, but in my investigation, my really very urgent and necessary investigations, the slightest disturbance, the jar of a door, I must ask you, certainly, sir, you can turn the lock if you're like that, you know, any time. A very good idea, said the stranger. The straw, sir, if I might make so bold as to remark, don't. If the straw makes trouble, put it down in the bill. And he mumbled at her, words suspiciously like curses. He was so odd standing there, so aggressive and explosive, bottle in one hand and test tube in the other, that Mrs. Hall was quite alarmed, but she was a resolute woman. In which case, I should like to know, sir, what you consider a shilling. Put down a shilling. Surely a shilling's enough. So be it, said Mrs. Hall, taking up the tablecloth and beginning to spread it over the table. If you're satisfied, of course. He turned and sat down with his coat collar toward her. All the afternoon he worked with the door locked, and, as Mrs. Hall testifies, for the most part in silence. But once there was a concussion and a sound of bottles ringing together, as though the table had been hit and the smash of a bottle flung violently down, and then a rapid pacing athwart the room. Fearing something was the matter, she went to the door and listened, not caring to knock. "'I can't go on!' he was raving. "'I can't go on! Three hundred thousand! Four hundred thousand! The huge multitude cheated. All my life it may take me. Patience, patience, indeed. Fool! Fool!' There was a noise of hobnails on the bricks in the bar, and Mrs. Hall had very reluctantly to leave the rest of his soliloquy. When she returned, the room was silent again, save for the faint crepitation of his chair and the occasional clink of a bottle. It was all over. The stranger had resumed work. When she took in his tea, she saw broken glass in the corner of the room under the concave mirror and a golden stain that had been carelessly wiped. She called attention to it. 
Put it in the bill, snapped her visitor. For God's sake, don't worry me. If there's damage done, put it down in the bill. And he went on ticking a list in the exercise book before him. I'll tell you something, said Fearnside mysteriously. It was late in the afternoon, and they were in the little beer shop of Iping Hanger. Well, said Teddy Henfrey, the chap you're speaking of, what my dog bit, well, he's black. Leastways his legs are. I see through the tear of his trousers and the tear of his glove. You'd have expected a sort of binky to show, wouldn't you? Well, there wasn't none, just blackness. I tell you, he's as black as my hat. My sakes, said Henfrey, it's a rummy case altogether. Why, his nose is as pink as paint. That's true, said Fearnside. I knows that, and I tell you what I'm thinking. That man's a piebald, Teddy. Black here and white there, in patches, and he's ashamed of it. He's a kind of half-breed, and the colours come off patchy instead of mixing. I've heard of such things before, and it's the common way with horses, as anyone can see. Chapter 4. Mr. Cuss Interviews the Stranger I have told the circumstances of the stranger's arrival in Iping with a certain fullness of detail, in order that the curious impression he created may be understood by the reader. But, excepting two odd incidents, the circumstances of his stay until the extraordinary day of the club festival may be passed over very cursorily. There were a number of skirmishes with Mrs. Hall on matters of domestic discipline, but in every case until late April, when the first signs of penury began, he overrode her by the easy expedient of an extra payment. Hall did not like him, and whenever he dared, he talked of the advisability of getting rid of him, but he showed his dislike chiefly by concealing it ostentatiously and avoiding his visitor as much as possible. Wait till the summer, said Mrs. Hall sagely, when the artists are beginning to come. Then we'll see. He may be a bit overbearing, but bills settled punctual is bills settled punctual, whatever you'd like to say. The stranger did not go to church, and indeed made no difference between Sunday and the irreligious days, even in costume. He worked, as Mrs. Hall thought, very fitfully. Some days he would come down early and be continuously busy. On others he would rise late, pace his room, fretting audibly for hours together, smoke, sleep in the armchair by the fire. Communication with the world beyond the village he had none. His temper continued very uncertain. For the most part, his manner was that of a man suffering under almost unendurable provocation, and once or twice things were snapped, torn, crushed or broken in spasmodic gusts of violence. He seemed under a chronic irritation of the greatest intensity. His habit of talking to himself in a low voice grew steadily upon him, but though Mrs. Hall listened conscientiously, she could make neither head nor tail of what she heard. He rarely went abroad by daylight, but at twilight he would go out muffled up invisibly, whether the weather were cold or not, and he chose the loneliest paths and those most overshadowed by trees and banks. His goggling spectacles and ghastly bandaged face under the penthouse of his hat came with a disagreeable suddenness out of the darkness upon one or two home-going labourers, and Teddy Henfrey, tumbling out of the scarlet coat one night at half-past nine, was scared shamefully by the stranger's skull-like head. He was walking hat in hand, lit by the sudden light of the opened inn door. Such children as saw him at nightfall dreamt of bogies, 
and it seemed doubtful whether he disliked boys more than they disliked him, or the reverse, but there was certainly a vivid enough dislike on either side. It was inevitable that a person of so remarkable an appearance and bearing should form a frequent topic in village such as Iping. Opinion was greatly divided about his occupation. Mrs. Hall was sensitive on the point. When questioned, she explained very carefully that he was an experimental investigator, going gingerly over the syllables as one who dreads pitfalls. When asked what an experimental investigator was, she would say with a touch of superiority that most educated people knew such things as that, and would thus explain that he discovered things. Her visitor had had an accident, she said, which temporarily discoloured his face and hands, and being of a sensitive disposition, he was averse to any public notice of the fact. Out of her hearing, there was a view largely entertained that he was a criminal, trying to escape from justice by wrapping himself up so as to conceal himself altogether from the eye of the police. This idea sprang from the brain of Mr. Teddy Henfrey. No crime of any magnitude dating from the middle or end of February was known to have occurred. Elaborated in the imagination of Mr. Gould, the probationary assistant in the National School, this theory took the form that the stranger was an anarchist in disguise, preparing explosives, and he resolved to undertake such detective operations as his time permitted. These consisted, for the most part, in looking very hard at the stranger whenever they met, or in asking people who had never seen the stranger leading questions about him. But he detected nothing. Another school of opinion followed Mr. Fearenside, and either accepted the piebald view or some modification of it, as, for instance, Silas Durgan, who was heard to assent that if he chooses to show himself at fairs, he'd make his fortune in no time, and, being a bit of a theologian, compared the stranger to the man with the one talent. Yet another view explained the entire matter by regarding the stranger as a harmless lunatic, that had the advantage of accounting for everything straight away. Between these main groups there were waverers and compromisers. Sussex folk have few superstitions, and it was only after the events of early April that the thought of the supernatural was first whispered in the village. But whatever they thought of him, people in Iping on the whole agreed in disliking him. His irritability, though it might have been comprehensible to an urban brain worker, was an amazing thing to these quiet Sussex villagers. The frantic gesticulations they surprised now and then, the headlong pace after nightfall that swept him upon them round quiet corners, the inhuman bludgeoning of all tentative advances of curiosity, the taste for twilight that led to the closing of doors, the pulling down of blinds, the extinction of candles and lamps. Who could agree with such goings-on? They drew aside as he passed down the village, and when he had gone by, young humorists would up with coat collars and down with hat brims and go pacing nervously after him in imitation of his occult bearing. There was a song popular at that time called The Bogeyman, Miss Satchel sang it at the schoolroom concert in aid of the church lamps, and thereafter, whenever one or two of the villagers were gathered together and the stranger appeared, a bar or so of this tune, more or less sharp or flat, was whistled in the midst of them. Also, belated little children would call, Bogeyman! after him, and make off tremulously elated. Cuss, the general practitioner, was devoured by curiosity. The bandages excited his professional interest. The report of the thousand and one bottles aroused his jealous regard. 
All through April and May, he coveted an opportunity to talk to the stranger, and at last, towards Whitsuntide, he could stand it no longer, but hit upon the subscription list for a village nurse as an excuse. He was surprised to find that Mr Hall did not know his guest's name. He gave a name, said Mrs Hall, an assertion which was quite unfounded, but I didn't rightly hear it. She thought it seemed so silly not to know the man's name. Cuss rapped at the parlour door and entered. There was a fairly audible imprecation from within. Pardon my intrusion, said Cuss, and then the door closed and cut Mrs Hall off from the rest of the conversation. She could hear the murmur of voices for the next ten minutes, then a cry of surprise, a stirring of feet, a chair flung aside, a bark of laughter, quick steps to the door, and Cuss appeared, his face white, his eyes staring over his shoulder. He left the door open behind him, and without looking at her, strode across the hall and went down the steps, and she heard his feet hurrying along the road. He carried his hat in his hand. She stood behind the door, looking at the open door of the parlour, then she heard the stranger laughing quietly, and then his footsteps came across the room. She could not see his face where she stood. The parlour door slammed, and the place was silent again. Cuss went straight up the village to Bunting, the vicar. "'Am I mad?' Cuss began abruptly, as he entered the shabby little study. "'Do I look like an insane person?' "'What's happened?' said the vicar, putting the ammonite on the loose sheets of his forthcoming sermon. "'That chap at the inn!' "'Well, give me something to drink,' said Cuss, and he sat down. When his nerves had been steadied by a glass of cheap sherry, the only drink the good vicar had available, he told him of the interview he had just had. "'Went in,' he gasped, and began to demand a subscription for that nurse fund.' He stuck his hands in his pockets as I came in, and he sat down lumpily in his chair, sniffed. I told him I'd heard he took an interest in scientific things. He said, yes, sniffed again, kept on sniffing all the time, evidently recently caught an infernal cold. No wonder, wrapped up like that. I developed the nurse idea, and all the while kept my eyes open. Bottles, chemicals, everywhere. Balance, test tubes in stands, and a smell of evening primrose. Would he subscribe? Said he'd consider it. Asked him point-blank, was he researching? Said he was. A long research? Got quite cross. A damnable long research, said he, blowing the cork out, so to speak. Oh, said I, and out came the grievance. The man was just on the boil, and my question boiled him over. He had been given a prescription, most valuable prescription. What for, he wouldn't say. Was it medical? "'Damn you! What are you fishing after?' I apologised. Dignified sniff and cough. He resumed. He'd read it. Five ingredients. Put it down. Turned his head. Draught of air from window lifted the paper. Swish! Rustle. He was working in a room with an open fireplace, he said. Saw a flicker, and there was the prescription burning and lifting chimneywood. Rushed towards it just as it whisked up to the chimney. So, just at that point, to illustrate his story... Out came his arm. Well? No hand. Just an empty sleeve. Lord, I thought, that's a deformity. Got a cork arm, I suppose, and has taken it off. Then I thought, there's something odd in that. What the devil keeps that sleeve up and open if there's nothing in it? 
There was nothing in it, I tell you. Nothing down it, right down to the joint. I could see right down to the elbow, and there was a glimmer of light shining through a tear of cloth. Good God, I said. And then he stopped, stared at me with those black goggles of his, and then at his sleeve. Well, that's all. He never said a word, just glared, and put his sleeve back in his pocket quickly. I was saying, said he, that there was the prescription burning, wasn't I? Interrogative cough. How the devil, said I, can you move an empty sleeve like that? Empty sleeve? Yes, said I, an empty sleeve. It's an empty sleeve, is it? You saw it was an empty sleeve. He stood up right away. I stood up too. He came toward me in three very slow steps and stood quite close, sniffed venomously. I didn't flinch, though I'm hanged if that bandaged knob of his and those blinkers aren't enough to unnerve anyone coming quietly up to you. You said it was an empty sleeve, he said. Certainly, I said. But staring and saying nothing, a barefaced man, unspectacled, starts scratch. Then, very quietly, he pulled his sleeve out of his pocket again, and raised his arm towards me as though he would show it to me again. He did it very, very slowly. I looked at it. Seemed an age. Well, said I, clearing my throat, there's nothing in it. Had to say something. I was beginning to feel frightened. I could see right down it. He extended it straight towards me, slowly, slowly, just like that, until the cuff was six inches from my face. Queer thing to see an empty sleeve come at you like that. And then... Well? Something, exactly like a finger and thumb, it felt, nipped my nose. Bunting began to laugh. There wasn't anything there, said Cuss, his voice running up to a shriek at the there. It's all very well for you to laugh, but I tell you I was so startled, I hit his cuff hard and turned round and cut out of the room. I left him. Cuss stopped. There was no mistaking the sincerity of his panic. He turned round in a helpless way and took a second glass of the excellent vicar's very inferior sherry. When I hit his cuff, said Cuss, I tell you, it felt exactly like hitting an arm. And there wasn't an arm. There wasn't the ghost of an arm. Mr. Bunting thought it over. He looked suspiciously at Cuss. It's a most remarkable story, he said. He looked very wise and grave indeed. It's really, said Mr. Bunting with judicial emphasis, a most remarkable story. Chapter 5. The Burglary at the Vicarage the facts of the burglary at the vicarage came to us chiefly through the medium of the vicar and his wife. It occurred in the small hours of Whit Monday, the day devoted in Iping to the club festivities. Mrs Bunting, it seems, woke up suddenly in the stillness that comes before the dawn, with the strong impression that the door of their bedroom had opened and closed. She did not arouse her husband at first, but sat up in bed, listening. She then distinctly heard the pad 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 of bare feet coming out of the adjoining dressing room and walking along the passage towards the staircase as soon as she felt assured of this she aroused the reverend mr bunting as quietly as possible 
He did not strike a match, but putting on his spectacles, her dressing gown and his bath slippers, he went out onto the landing to listen. He heard quite distinctly a fumbling going on at his study desk downstairs, and then a violent sneeze. At that, he returned to his bedroom, armed himself with the most obvious weapon, the poker, and descended the staircase as noiselessly as possible. Mrs Bunting came out on the landing. The hour was about four, and the ultimate darkness of the night was past. There was a faint shimmer of light in the hall, but the study doorway yawned impenetrably black. Everything was still, except the faint creaking of the stairs under Mr Bunting's tread and the slight movements in the study. Then something snapped. The drawer was opened, and there was a rustle of papers. Then came an imprecation, and a match was struck, and the study was flooded with yellow light. Mr Bunting was now in the hall, and through the crack of the door he could see the desk and the open drawer and a candle burning on the desk, but the robber he could not see. He stood there in the hall, undecided what to do, and Mrs Bunting, her face white and intent, crept slowly downstairs after him. One thing kept Mr Bunting's courage, the persuasion that this burglar was a resident in the village. They heard the chink of money, and realised that the robber had found the housekeeping reserve of gold, two pounds ten in half-sovereigns altogether. At that sound, Mr Bunting was nerved to abrupt action. Gripping the poker firmly, he rushed into the room, closely followed by Mrs Bunting. "'Surrender!' cried Mr Bunting fiercely, and then stooped amazed. Apparently the room was perfectly empty." Yet their conviction that they had, that very moment, heard somebody moving in the room had amounted to a certainty. For half a minute, perhaps, they stood gaping. Then Mrs Bunting went across the room and looked behind the screen, while Mr Bunting, by a kindred impulse, peered under the desk. Then Mrs Bunting turned back the window curtains, and Mr Bunting looked up the chimney and probed it with the poker. Then Mrs Bunting scrutinised the waste paper basket, and Mr Bunting opened the lid of the coal scuttle, then they came to a stop and stood with eyes interrogating each other. "'I could have sworn,' said Mr Bunting. "'The candle,' said Mr Bunting. "'Who lit the candle?' "'The drawer,' said Mrs Bunting. "'And the money's gone,' she went hastily to the doorway. "'Of all the strange occurrences!' There was a violent sneeze in the passage. They rushed out, and as they did so, the kitchen door slammed. "'Bring the candle,' said Mr Bunting, and led the way. They both heard the sound of bolts being hastily shot back. As he opened the kitchen door, he saw through the scullery that the back door was just opening, and the faint light of early dawn displayed the dark masses of the garden beyond. He is certain that nothing went out of the door. It opened, stood open for a moment, and then closed with a slam. As it did so, the candle Mrs Bunting was carrying from the study flickered and flared, it was a minute or more before they entered the kitchen. The place was empty. They refastened the back door, examined the kitchen, pantry and scullery thoroughly, and at last went down into the cellar. There was not a soul to be found in the house, search as they would. Daylight found the vicar and his wife, a quaintly costumed little couple, still marvelling about on their own ground floor by the unnecessary light of a guttering candle.
and welcome back. I hope you enjoyed listening to this first instalment of The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells. If you want to head over to my Patreon page, you will see that I have now uploaded my latest offering exclusively for my patrons, The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. I do regular stories and classic poems just for my patrons, so if you're interested in that or just want to support The Well-Told Tale, please do consider visiting patreon.com slash theWellToldTale. There's a link in the description. That's all for this time. I'll be back next week with part two of The Invisible Man. I hope you can join me.